Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody out here this morning. And um, before we turn to the text, uh, I, I just want to remind everybody, as Kevin did when we started, that we have a new members class. We really just call it our Getting to Know Us class um, this next Saturday. You don't even have to be planning to join right away to come out. It's just a chance to see who we are. We only hold these about three times a year. Um, so if you're even thinking about it, it would be really good to be on out this next Saturday. And let us know because we've got to get food figured out. We don't want to starve anybody. So that is this next Saturday. So to turn back this morning to to our message, and I, I I want to begin this morning with an uncomfortable question. The uncomfortable question is this. How did your beliefs about God impact your decisions and your behaviors this last week? How did your beliefs about God impact your decisions and behaviors this last week? In what ways did the doctrinal truths that you know in your head cause you to act differently, to set aside your desires, your plans, or your goals for a completely different course of God-glorifying action? Does what you know actually impact your life? Did it impact your life? How do these truths impact your life? That God sovereignly rules over all things, that God is all-powerful, that God is completely holy, and that our God is a God of unfailing love who always keeps his promises. How did those things impact your life this last week? Maybe to ask it even tighter, a closer question. Is your knowledge about God transforming you at the very core of your being by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is it causing anything to happen? Or does your knowledge about God have very little impact on your everyday life? See, I'm I'm asking this because it's all too easy for Christians to go about their everyday life as if they are the functional center of their universe. Not God. I'm the center of the universe. My family's the center of the universe. My job is the center of the universe. We, we have a center and it's not God. As one scholar noted, it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. And, and I don't mean by this that he's ethereal, that's like spiritual, but, but rather that he's become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's completely lost his prominence in people's everyday lives. He goes on a little further to say those professing Christians, professing Christians who assure the pollsters of their beliefs in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence or influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. He says that, that is weightlessness. So you see the clear and present danger of living in this kind of mindset in which God is weightless is not just that it blinds us to the true glory of God. 
causes us to put ourselves at the center of the universe. And even more, as we're going to see in Daniel 5 today, this prideful, me-centered lifestyle may actually be setting us up for a painful reckoning with God himself. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're taking notes today, we're going to break our text down into three large sections. They really focus on pride. We're going to see three things about pride this morning in this encounter in chapter 5. We're going to see the, the audacity of human pride in verses 1 through 9. We're going to see the irony of human pride in verses 10 through 23. And then at the end, we're going to see the futility of human pride in verses 24 through 30. But before we dig into the text itself, I I thought it'd be helpful for us to situate this account in its historical context. Because I realize most of you probably aren't reading Daniel every day. You're probably not lining it up how it fits in history. And, And I think it's really helpful to kind of put a couple things in order. I mean, after all, it's a very abrupt transition from Daniel chapter 4 to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel chapter 5 starts out with King Belshazzar. I mean, it leaves leaves us with more than a few questions. Who's Belshazzar? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? How much time has elapsed between chapters 4 and 5? And by the way, why is Belshazzar throwing this big party? So let's grab the first three questions in reverse order. It's been 30 to 40 years. 30 to 40 years between chapter 4 and chapter 5. King Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a total of about 43 years. He died in 462 BC, and his once great kingdom started to quickly spiral out of control upon his death. His son, Evil Murdoch, what a name, ascended to the throne but was murdered within a year by his brother Nereglesser. Nereglesser reigned for about four years and was succeeded by his son, who was assassinated only a month after he took the throne. He was replaced by Nabonidus. And you don't have to keep all these names. (laughs) Nabonidus is actually the last full king, reigns 16 years, but the last 10 years he reigns in exile 500 miles away from Babylon with his son by the name of... Belshazzar, who's reigning the empire as his father's personal vice regent. So while his father is truly king, he is the one who is reigning as king. And he reigned as king until this very night in chapter 5 in 539 BC when Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. A little bit of context. But all this leaves us with a question that we haven't answered yet. Our fourth question. And and, and this answer to this fourth question actually magnifies really the gravity of this entire account. This is where historical context really like makes this passage explode. Why is Belshazzar throwing this crazy party? Well, even though our text doesn't tell us, the Greek historian Herodotus provides us with some significant clues beginning with the fact that Cyrus marched against the city of Babylon. When he came near the city, the Babylonian army stormed out and engaged Cyrus. 
Cyrus's army quickly beat down the Babylonians. They retreated back inside of their city. But once inside, the Babylonians were indifferent to the Persian siege. Because they had years. They had years of provisions stockpiled in the city. As we learned last week, it has 25 foot thick walls. Even more, they have the, the, the river Euphrates goes through the city. They have an infinite water supply. And on top of all that, they knew by nature that Cyrus was an impatient man. They're like, we have so much stuff here, there is no way he's going to wait us out. So, so the picture that we have here is, is that when chapter 5 opens... And this party is being thrown. The Medes and the Persians are camped outside the city gates. They're laying siege to the city, and the city is saying, yeah, what siege? We don't care. And Belshazzar is throwing this really to demonstrate his bravado. To prove his power and to bolster his leader's confidence in his rule. In fact, this even helps us to understand why in the world at this party of all parties is Belshazzar calling for the temple vessels that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had seized in Jerusalem. Like, why? Why do it now? It's because they were powerful symbols of Babylon's glory. They were powerful symbols of his grandfather's victories in the not-so-distant past. He's saying, look at what we've done as a country. Look at what our, 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 the previous kings have done. This is how great we are. Look at these symbols that show us how great we are. See, in all this, Belshazzar didn't simply call for these vessels because he was drunk. It's a calculated act of audacity to unite his people around his leadership and his attempt to say, don't worry about the pesky Persians. Don't worry. Trust me, follow me. You have everything that you need in my rule and in our gods. You have everything you need. You got a problem? Look here, I have answers. In fact, I am the answer. That's what he's doing. Now, if you're a Christian reading this, or maybe an early Jew reading this, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to recognize that the Belshazzar is making a grave mistake on at least three fronts. On at least three fronts, he's making a grave mistake. One, he's profaning the vessels of God's temple at a drunken party. Number two, he's using these holy vessels to worship false gods. And number three... We know on account of those former two, he's setting himself up for a confrontation with God himself. After all, what were the final words out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth at the very end of chapter four? Final words that ever come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All of his works are right. All of his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now let's just consider this and how these two stories are put next to each other. 
This is a powerful statement because it functions as the hinge that holds these two stories together. It's the interpretive hinge. It's the interpretive lens. We have two stories, both about pride, both end differently. And the uniting theme that holds them together is verse 37 of chapter 4. It ends chapter 4, but it really acts as the introductory statement into chapter 5. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. Knowing what God has just done in chapter 4, we come to chapter 5, we know that God is going to humble Belshazzar for his pride. The question is, as we go into chapter 5, how is Belshazzar going to respond? How's he going to respond? Well, as we turn back to the text, it doesn't take long for us to see. Verse 5. We see immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposing the lampstand. Notice, it's lit. It's well seen. It's not in a dark corner. You can't hide it. And the king saw the hand as it wrote and the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together and the king called out loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologer. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Okay? Daddy's the king. I'm the vice regent. You'll be under me. Then all the king's wise men came in. But they couldn't read. They couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. And then in this we see, Daniel wants us to see in the way he's crafted this for us, the irony of human pride. He's just shown us the audacity, but now he's going to show us the irony. Just to think about everything in the party changes. In an instant, Belshazzar's fingers still curved around the temple vessels, the echoes of their praise to the gold, the gods of gold and silver and stone, still reverberating in the halls of the palace when this mysterious hand appears. And while it would be right and proper for him to respond in fear, that, I mean, that, that's, that's how Nebuchadnezzar responds to his dream. He responds in fear. We see that Belshazzar is totally undone and he's completely humiliated before he speaks a single word. He's not just afraid, he's not just terrified. What I mean by this is even though most of our English translations say his legs gave way in verse 6, scholars tell us the underlying Aramaic points us in a far humili- more humiliating conclusion. What happened is Belshazzar lost control of his bodily functions. And there was an obvious new puddle under the king's chair. There's an obvious issue with Belshazzar. Nobody can miss it. It's obvious and it's recorded in the text to know he's lost it. 
And, and on top of this, when Belshazzar's wise man couldn't interpret the writing, what's, what are we told about? He's left pale-faced, utterly confounded. He doesn't have a clue what to do. He's lost. He's stuck. The man who was saying, look to me, doesn't know where to go. That is until the next step of irony. Who comes to the rescue? His mom. This, this isn't his wife, the queen. This is mom stepping in to rescue him from himself. And the irony in this is that in Babylonian culture, is, is, it, is it a woman is coming to the rescue, not a man? It's something that shames the king. But even worse for Belshazzar is that when his mom speaks, she rebukes him. Belshazzar, this is basically, this is a little paraphrase here. If you were a truly great and wise king like your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, you would have already known that Daniel is the wise man that you need to consult. She tells him where he has everything wrong, what he doesn't know. Or at least what he's not responding to. So Belshazzar humiliates himself in front of his guests. His, wife, his, his mom humiliates him in front of his guests. And then Daniel's brought in. And it's at this point that Belshazzar tries to get the upper hand again. He realizes he's losing points. And, and so, so in all pretentiousness, he puffs himself up when he goes to talk to Daniel. Now notice, how does he interact with Daniel? Does he humbly pursue the wisdom and insights of Nebuchadnezzar's chief wise men? That's who Daniel is. He doesn't deal with him as this, this chief wise man. No, he puffs him up and tries to emphasize his self-importance by disparaging an 80-year-old man. That's who Daniel is about this time. He's about 80 years old. And he doesn't address him in light of his faithful service to Nebuchadnezzar. No, he actually says, no, you're nothing more than something that was part of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest. You are nothing more than a prisoner of war. You're one of the exiles of Judah. You're nobody. Even more, he doesn't come to Daniel as one who truly has the knowledge. He comes with with suspicion and skepticism and unbelief. Well, Daniel, I've heard you're able to do this, but I'm not sure I really believe that. The king's posturing. And in all this, is what is he doing? He's trying to overcome the utter humiliation of what he's just gone through. But then when Daniel finally responds, if you remember from last week, how he interacted with Nebuchadnezzar in grace and in mercy and in comfort, we see nothing of this in his response to Belshazzar. He doesn't give a single word of comfort or grace. In fact, he doesn't even give him the interpretation. In another act of stunning irony, Daniel gives him a reprimand for his arrogant pride with a very important history lesson, starting in verse 17. Verse 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will, I will read the writing of, to the king and make known to the interpretation. But notice he does not go right to the interpretation. 
He goes to a reprimand. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkey. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was made wet with the dew of heaven until... He knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and he sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, what have you not done? You've not humbled your heart. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone. They don't see or hear. But the God in whose hand is your breath, you, in your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored Let's just pull a couple things out of here. The first thing Daniel wants Belshazzar to recognize is that Nebuchadnezzar's greatness and his glory and his majesty was a gift from God. Nebuchadnezzar learned that. He wants Belshazzar to know that. But what does this ultimately mean? It ultimately means that Nebuchadnezzar's rule over all peoples and nations and languages wasn't the product ultimately of his military prowess. It wasn't ultimately the product of his wise kingship. No, it was the product of God's sovereign rule. And it's a point that this book has been making since verse 2 of chapter 1. It's the theme that holds our entire book together. Let's pick it up in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2. And the Lord gave. What, do we, what does Daniel want us to know? What does God want us to know? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. And we could, add, we could also add, and God gave some of the vessels of the house of God. All of that was God's giving, not Nebuchadnezzar's power. And then it was Nebuchadnezzar who brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his gods and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So number one, Nebuchadnezzar was king and he had the extent and reign that he did because of God. Number two, the second thing that Daniel wants Belshazzar to recognize is the reason for Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. There was a reason for his insanity. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar with an extended period of madness. Why? Because his heart was raised up and his spirit was hardened so that he acted proudly. And and it wasn't until he knew, he knew that the Most High God ruled the kingdom of mankind and he set it over whom he will that he was finally humbled himself and God restored him. But the third issue 
is by far the greatest. The most damning thing that Daniel reveals is that even though Belshazzar is it is it Belshazzar already knew all this? Verse twenty two. Look in your Bibles. Belshazzar knew this. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't unknown. He was fully aware. It also helps us understand why these two accounts are linked like this in the book. He knew. He knew what God had done and he still chose to lift himself against the Lord of heaven and he refused to honor him. After everything he knew about what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar, he chose to offend the very God that had crushed his grandfather. See, it's only when we understand this that we're able to comprehend the true audacity of Belshazzar's party and the reason these two accounts are back-to-back. Yet as we look at them, there is a difference between the two. Nebuchadnezzar, from chapter 1 through chapter 4, he's an ignorant pagan who God is slowly revealing his true glory and greatness to. There's this process of revelation going on to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 through chapter 4. And it culminates in 4. And the difference for Belshazzar is that Belshazzar already knew better. He knew the stories about God's work in his grandfather's life. He was fully aware of Nebuchadnezzar's ordeal, his testimony of praise that he wrote out and he distributed to the entire nation. In fact, this is a point of reference Chapter 4 is the only chapter in our, in our entire, entire Bible that's written by a pagan. It's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Even more than this, as king, he had all the official records. He has access to everything. He also knows that God restored Nebuchadnezzar to power after it all happened. So he knows that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Belshazzar has every reason to praise God and to pursue his favor, especially in light of the Persian and the Medes' onslaught. I mean, I mean, if we kind of think of like King Hezekiah, what should Belshazzar be doing right now? He should be actually turning to the one God who's proven to all of Babylon that he is truly the most powerful God. But he's not. And in this, he simply proves the age-old adage that those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Let's Let's just actually stop there for just a minute. Do you realize that one of the main reasons we have a Bible and that God has recorded everything that happened to his people Israel, we're told in the book of Hebrews, is so that we would look and see and live differently. We would see the negative example and respond positively. Paul talks the same way. It's there for us to see, to know and understand this great God, to know who he is, and respond. 
Belshazzar doesn't. And it costs him everything. It costs him everything. We get to Daniel chapter 5, verse 25. Daniel turns to the writing. He says, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In the last lines in this chapter, that very night, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And in this we see we see the true futility of human pride. Let's just take a look at the handwriting for a minute. Handwriting on the wall. The words that are on the wall in one way are kind of knowable but they didn't make any sense. In, in, in Aramaic, mene, mene, tekel, parson, it, it forms a sequence of weights that are moving from the largest, which is Amina, to the smallest, Perez. And a Perez is basically like, like 1%. I mean, it's less than 1% of Amina. So we're moving from this very large number to something very small. Yet when Daniel, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turns to these words, instead of turning to them as, as measures, he, he reads them as verbs, And it comes across as numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. See, see, why is Belshazzar's kingdom going to come to an end? It's because as a king, he's been weighed and found wanting. He's been weighed and found wanting. To return to the imagery in our introduction. Who's weightless? Belshazzar's weightless. He, he's just living as, as, if, as if the God of Israel is nothing. He has no bearing. He has no ability to impact. Yet God is saying in the handwriting, you've been weighed. You've been found weightless. You've been found worthless. In all of your pride, you think the world revolves around you, but you have nothing. Yet as we think about it, because these two chapters are next to each other, we need to understand that God did not compel Belshazzar to walk in pride and arrogance. The whole purpose of these two being together is to see that Belshazzar could have lived a different life. He had every reason to live differently. He knew better. He had better answers. He understood who this God was, though he didn't accept it. 
He, he, didn't, he, he refused to apply the hard-won lessons that his grandfather had learned so many years before. He had every reason. He didn't lose his kingdom for a lack of knowledge. He lost his kingdom for a lack of applying what he knew. And that very night, as is often the hand of God to do things in ways to magnify his greatness and to make it clear, it is by his hand that very night Belshazzar lost everything. Which as Paul Harvey used to put it brings us to the rest of the story. How does an impregnable city with 25 foot walls fall in a night without siege ramps without engines of war without eventual starvation how do you lose a city at its peak with all of its defenses and all of its stockrooms full well Herodotus once again tells us When the Babylonians ran into their city a short time after Cyrus and some of his generals, we don't, we don't know who came up with the plan, but somebody came up with a plan to avoid a, a siege that would have taken years to complete. What Cyrus did is he posted his army on each side of the city, the front and the back, where the Euphrates River came into the city and where the Euphrates River came out. He posted his army on both sides of the city. And he grabbed the rest of his men and he marched off but told the men who were at the city to wait until the river dropped low enough to enter the city. And he marched his men well away from the city and they began to dig trenches. They dug a series of drainage canals to lower the Euphrates River. And it happened that night that the water level dropped and the Persian army marched in with water up to their waist and took the entire city. And the most intriguing detail that Herodotus gives, he says this, the inhabitants in the middle of the city were caught unaware because all of this time they were dancing and celebrating a holiday which happened to fall on that very night. We see some overlap. We see the hand of God at work. As he's already revealed, especially last week, God rules the kingdoms. He places over them whoever he wills. So the question comes, how do we apply these truths in this chapter to our everyday lives as Christians. How do we move to application? I'd like to begin where we did last week with with taking a look at the original audience of the book. It's helpful to help us make sure we're anchored in what the author is trying to accomplish. Just think about who's, who's the original audience of Daniel. 
It's the exiled people of Judah who are now living under Persian rule, some of which are probably also part of the early group who's going back to to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem who were allowed to return later, which we read about in the text later. So, So these are the people that this book is going to. A people who had lost their king, a people who had lost their kingdom, because their entire nation, the northern ten tribes of Israel, the southern two tribes of Judah, had been weighed and found wanting. They were in exile. They had been humbled. They had lost everything. We talked about this last week. But let's listen to what God said. We didn't look at this last week. Let's look at the words that God speaks through his prophets to his people, both in the north and the south, beginning in the north with Isaiah. Chapter 1, starting verse 2. God says this through Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I've reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Well, what's the verdict in the north? Everything they know about God, they've written off. They've abandoned him for anything else that's possible. How about the southern two tribes of Judah? We see it under Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they're not gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which doesn't profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fount of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's like, like, what happens when you reject God? You're losing everything. You're not gaining anything back. And in these two things, what do we see? We see that the people of Israel were no better than King Belshazzar. In their pride, they had lifted up themselves against the Lord of heaven. And just like Belshazzar, they knew better. They knew the countless ways that God had protected and provided and disciplined their forefathers. They knew it. So on the one hand, his original audience can read this again and see themselves and they can say, yes, we deserve God's righteous judgment. But in all this, because these two accounts are placed next to each other, I don't believe God's just trying to rub their nose in it and saying, yeah, this is why you lost everything. No, he wants them to see their sin in Nebuchadnezzar's past experience and how it contrasts with Belshazzar. See, see, in this, he's exposing his people's sin, but at the same time, he's pointing them to the proper response. 
That's what God wants his people to see, and it's, it's not just a historical record. There's a message to be applied to the lives of his people in the moment. They need to recognize the true weight of his sovereign authority. They need to recognize his infinite glory. They need to recognize his worth. He wants them to see the, the true source of their sorrow and, 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 and their loss and the judgment that they're under. He wants them to see it. But he wants them to respond by humbly repenting of their pride and their sin so that they can be forgiven and restored. And I'm pressing on that hard because Daniel recounts the entire story of Nebuchadnezzar inside this story. He wants to make sure it doesn't fall out of frame. Second thing we need to do as we go to application, so as we move from the original audience, we need to recognize our God for who he truly is. Just think about it, Christian. Who has our God revealed himself to be? He's a God that opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And on top of that, he's a God that beckons all people to find mercy and forgiveness in him. He he doesn't just stand back and say, well, figure it out for yourselves. I'm just going to leave it in your court. No, he actively calls mankind to respond. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, but without money, without price. Why will you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's the heart of our God. Isaiah 55, starting verse 6. Seek the Lord while he might be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord. What? What's Notice their condition. Are these good people? No, they're wicked. They're unrighteous. And he's saying, turn. Return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him. Why? Because our God will, abundant, will pardon abundantly. This is our God. And if we think about it, how do we see this most clearly? We actually see it in the humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just think about Jesus. He didn't have the power, the glitz, and the glamour that this world holds in such high regard. He didn't come in all that. Jesus didn't have outward beauty or majesty to draw people to him. He arrived as a baby, relatively poor parents, a humble carpenter. He, he, didn't, he didn't show up as a mighty king. The king that he truly is, he didn't show up like that. 
He he didn't have the resources to throw a star-studded party for thousands of his friends. And on top of this, he, he had relatively few followers as we follow him through by the time he gets to the end of his ministry. Yet what happened when Jesus' life was weighed in God's balance? When Jesus' life was weighed in God's balance, it was found to be perfect and complete, able to satisfy fully the demands of his holiness. Not just for himself, but for all who would come to him. The words of our Lord and Savior, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the call of our Savior. That's that's what the gospel provides. Rest. Rest for the person who's locked in their sin, trying to find everything that they want in this world but can't. Rest for the person who's trying to do good and trying to make themselves right in God's eyes. Because when we come to Christ, we rest on his righteousness. We rest on the promise that Paul lays out in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the call that goes out to the entire world right now. to turn from whatever is locking you in to your self-centeredness and your focus on this world. To free you from thinking that, that God is just okay with you as, you're all, as you are. The reminder that we don't clean ourselves up but that God does the work. And it's free for all who come in repentance and faith. See, this is one of the most definitive ways that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble is in the gospel itself. Which brings me to us. Speaking mainly to Christians here, I think we need to recognize that we're more like Belshazzar than we'd like to admit. We're we're more like Belshazzar than we'd like to admit. See, we, we could come to this text today and we could easily try to apply it to our political leaders. We could easily try to go apply it to, to the pride crowd. We could easily go try to apply it to our prideful bosses or prideful people that we know in church, the people that aren't us. But the truth of the matter is that we all struggle with pride one way or another. On the one hand, I think almost all of us want to stand above the crowd one way or another and we want our contributions and our wisdom to be celebrated. And on the other hand, we have to be honest that we're constantly tempted to place our own wisdom and desires and goals even as Christians above God's revealed word. We're tempted to. It can look like 
asking the question that's been around since Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? It can look like rationalizing our sins and convincing ourselves that God doesn't really care about those class of sins because we're so focused on these other outrageous sins. We can make the world revolve around us by, by measuring our devotion to God in terms that the Bible doesn't declare. We can make the entire Christian life about something that's not even biblical and then feel good about it. See, we can be tempted to act and think and live as if we're the center of the universe instead of walking in humble dependence before the Lord. See, as we conclude this morning, I, I think, I think the, the point that's coming out of this text, whether it be to the Christian or the non-Christian, is that the heart of pride is this. That the heart of pride is this, to know to know that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble but live in a way as if you are not accountable to his judgment and you have no need of his services. That is the heart of pride. And it's the warning for us all in the text today. Let's close in a word of prayer.